Uh, Jeff Tucker told me uh, some time ago they were having a conference on uh, economics of fascism and asked me for a topic that I'd like to talk about. I said, how about the economics of fascism? So, uh, <laughs> so I wrote that down. So, uh, so I got that before it was taken by somebody else. Uh, so, so I thought that I'd keep it simple. And, uh, and it just so happens I've, I've, I've written a couple of articles on this topic maybe 12 or 15 years ago. They were published in uh, The Freeman, places like that. And I've done a good bit of reading over the years on uh, fascism, the economic aspects of fascism. And, uh, and of course, uh, as uh, people mentioned yesterday, most people hear the word fascism. They think of anti-Semitism, racism, dictatorship. Uh, but there always was a, an economic component to it. And I think it was uh, Friedrich Hayek uh, who once once said to the effect that uh, if a government controls uh, uh, your economic life, it can control your entire life. And he's, I'm sure he wasn't the first one to say that, but I, I could probably dig up that Hayek quote if I, if I wanted to. But that's certainly true. So you, you really can't separate uh, totalitarian control from what we call fascism if it's, uh, in essence, uh, uh, I guess what we're talking about here is um, allowing private property, but uh, so heavily regimented, regimented and controlled by the state that uh, it is forced to uh, serve the state, and the owners of the property are forced to serve the state. And uh, a lot of people don't recognize how uh, enthusiastic so many Americans were in the 1920s and 30s about the idea of fascism. They kind of kind of liked this idea. It was universally applauded. By uh, by the uh, the elite uh, opinion makers, all over uh, in many parts of the world, and so I thought I'd give you some examples of this. Um, the American ambassador to Italy, a man named Richard Washburn Child, he wrote the preface to Mussolini's autobiography, and uh, Mussolini was a clever thinker. The title of his autobiography was My Autobiography. <laughs> <laughs> I guess he didn't have some slick marketing guy at Random House like I do to pick pick titles. And, uh, and here's what here's what the American ambassador to Italy wrote about this. He said, "It may be shrewdly forecast that no man will exhibit dimensions of permanent greatness equal to Mussolini. The Duce is now the greatest figure in this sphere in time." End quote. And uh, someone mentioned Churchill yesterday. I think it was Ralph uh, Winston Churchill wrote in 1927. Quote, if I had been an Italian, I am sure I would have been entirely with you and donned the fascist black shirt, end quote. As late as 1940, Churchill was still describing Mussolini as, quote, a great man, 1940. And so uh, U.S. Congressman Saul Bloom, he was chairman of the House Foreign Relations Committee, said in 1926 that, Quote, Mussolini will be a great thing, not only for Italy, but for all of us if he succeeds. Uh, it is his inspiration, his determination, his constant toil that has literally rejuvenated Italy, uh, end quote. Uh, there were economists, too. There was an American economist named uh, Lawrence Dennis who wrote a book in 1936 called The Coming American Fascism, which he thought was a good thing. And he, and, and he said this, Defenders of 18th century Americanism, classical liberalism, the John Locke philosophy, and so forth, were sure to become the laughing stock of their own countrymen. And the adoption of fascism would intensify a national spirit and put it behind the enterprises of public welfare and social control, end quote. And then he, then he went on to say the big stumbling block 
to, to do this, though, was, quote, liberal norms of law or constitutional guarantees of private rights, end quote. So the fascists always understood who the enemy was. The enemy was was uh, individual liberty and the belief in individual liberty. So it was, uh, as one thing I respect about these old fascists is that they were, they were uh, upfront and straightforward. They said, uh, we hate individual liberty, classical liberalism, that's the enemy and that's who we intend to destroy in, in terms of the, the world of ideas. Uh, they, didn't, they didn't fudge it, they didn't pretend to be Jeffersonians or at least most of them didn't uh, uh, at all. Uh, British intellectuals were quite enthusiastic about fascism. George Bernard Shaw uh, said in 1927 that his, uh, his fellow socialists should be delighted to find at last a socialist, Mussolini, who speaks and thinks as responsible rulers do. So he kind of liked them. Ezra Pound declared Mussolini as continuing the task of Thomas Jefferson. So he was Ezra. He, he of course, I think he was insane. I, I, he, he literally, Ezra Pound was literally ended up in a, in a crazy house. Uh, so, well, what what was fascism? Um, what what was it? Uh, I'll take it from the horse's mouth. Uh, I, I can offer a few quote, more quotes from Mussolini himself, and, and a few other people yesterday did this. But um, here's what Mussolini said in his, his little book on uh, fascism called Fascism. Um, <laughs> uh, the fascist conception of life stresses the importance of the state and accepts the individual only insofar as his interests coincide with the state. It is opposed to classical liberalism, which denied the state in the name of the individual. Fascism reasserts the rights of the state as expressing the real essence of the individual. So that, that really is it. It's a, the, the individual only exists to serve the state. It's his duty to serve the state. He thought it was unnatural, he used the word unnatural, for government to exist to protect individual rights. He said this, the maxim that society exists only for the well-being and freedom of the individuals composing it does not seem to be in conformity with nature's plans. If classical liberalism spells individualism, fascism spells government. So uh, that's, that's the essence of it. So the essence is uh, government is the master, not the servant of the, of the people. As far as the economics and the economic policy, uh, if you read some of this literature, uh, especially the Italian fascist uh, literature, which I'm going to focus on since Hans uh, is our Hitler expert and spoke about uh, the Germans uh, yesterday, um, there's a lot of talk about planned industrial harmony, and this was uh, essentially, you know, ignoring or, or being ignorant of the whole idea of the spontaneous orders of market, order of markets, the uh, Adam Smith's invisible hand, how harmony is created by the pursuit of self-interest in the free market, in a private property economy. This was all ignored, and, as, as, and there was this insistence that you need to have some sort of central plan to have harmony, that the market was chaotic. And uh, as though Adam Smith didn't explain all this, you know, um, almost 200 years earlier. And so um, some, some more quotes um, by uh, the Duce. Government intervention in Italy was too diverse, varied, and contrasting. There has been disorganic intervention case by case as the need arises. And Mussolini was complaining. Fascism would correct all this by directing the economy towards certain fixed objectives, fixed objectives, and would introduce order in the economic field. So there's, 
So there had to be fixed objectives fixed by the state or by Mussolini, whoever, and that would introduce order. And there was said to be a need for a unity of aim, uh, the, uh, a central plan, in other words. Uh, and you see, uh, I, I dug up some uh, almost identical statements in one of my articles here by some Americans. Uh, Robert Reich, the former labor secretary, in one of his books, he says this, in order to counteract the untidy marketplace, an interventionist industrial policy must strive to integrate the full range of targeted government policies, procurement, research and development, trade, antitrust, tax credits, and subsidies into a coherent strategy. End quote. It's very Mussolinian, I guess, that you know, there's too much uh, ad hoc uh, intervention. And he, he, he goes on to say in another publication, He's complaining that interventionism is the product of fragmented and uncoordinated decisions made by many different government agencies, and it needs to be more unified. And so it's pretty much uh, echoing uh, Mussolini there, uh, Robert Reich. Uh, another element of this was um, government business partnerships. Uh, there's, there were, uh, and I think Bob Higgs mentioned some of the aspects of corporatism yesterday. And whenever I hear this government business partnership, I always uh, what pops into my head is a line of Ayn Rand's uh, where she pointed out in one of her publications that uh, whenever a business enters into a partnership with government, government always ends up being the senior partner. So you, you, it's not really a partnership; it's it's a you know a corrupt bargain at, at the very uh, least. And so, uh, and this certainly happened in in uh, in uh, Italy. In Mussolini's Italy, businesses were grouped into uh, syndicates, groups called syndicates, such as the National Fascist Confederation of Commerce, the National Conf Fascist Confederation of Credit Insurance, Steel, and so on. And then there were uh, government-planned agencies called corporations for each industry that would uh, try to uh, plan, uh, plan everything. And uh, why was this necessary? Again, according to Mussolini, because the principle of private initiative could only be useful in the service of the national interest in this way. So economic nationalism was, uh, is what we're talking about here as far as economic fascism. And you could just eliminate the word fascism and call it economic nationalism or national greatness conservatism. That would be an even better uh, phrase to describe what we're talking about here uh, as far as that goes. And uh, I think it was also, uh, you know, Bob Higgs had mentioned the, the – uh, Sort of the corruption aspect of this, of uh, the revolving door between the government and business, especially in the military sphere. Uh, this was widely acknowledged in Mussolini's day, where Mussolini himself said this, he bragged, three-quarters of the Italian economic system had been subsidized by the government. Three-quarters of the Italian economy, according to Mussolini. And basically, uh, they socialized losses and privatized the profits of these businesses that were sort of in cahoots and supporters of Mussolini and his regime is what they did. And here's a, uh, one, uh, one critic of all this uh, talk about, talked about Mussolini's uh, revolving door. Uh, he says this, this is an interesting description of how it works. Signor uh, Ciano, one of Mussolini's most trusted advisors, was an officer in the Royal Navy before and during the war. When the war was over, uh, World War I, he joined the Orlando Shipbuilding Company. In October 1922, he entered Mussolini's cabinet, and the subsidies for naval construction and the merchant marine came under the control of his department. General Cavallero, at the close of the war, left the army and entered the Pirelli Rubber Company. 
1925, he became undersecretary at the Ministry of War, and then he left the Ministry of War and entered the service of the Ansaldo Armament Firm. What a surprise. What a shocker. Among the directors of the big companies in Italy, retired generals and generals in active service became very numerous, numerous after the advent of fascism. So it was just uh, good old-fashioned cronyism and uh, mercantilism, really. Uh, uh, there was a lot of protectionism, too. Protectionism was a big part part of, uh, of uh, the fascist system. Economic autarky was, was a part of it. And so these are some of the elements of, uh, if you look at this system of economic fascism, watered-down central planning, I think of it as economic nationalism uh, in the extreme. And as far as what I'm going to have to say here in my remaining time is uh, I, can't, I can't help drawing uh, Abraham Lincoln into all this, as, 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 as those of you who have read my, my writings. And I think he, he really deserves to be drawn into this because the whole idea of economic nationalism didn't come from Italy and Germany first. It came from America, and it came from Alexander Hamilton before it came from uh, Benito Mussolini. Uh, Hamilton and his report on the manufacturers uh, was the, the first uh, American outspoken uh, American advocate of economic nationalism, whereby the government would take a much more active role in promoting uh, the national greatness and somehow. He advocated massive government subsidies for road and canal building, for example, at a very early time, protectionist tariffs, central bank. These were all Hamilton's ideas. This was the economic version of economic nationalism that was started uh, at, the, at the very beginning of the republic. And, uh, and, of course, this battle uh, over economic nationalism was fought in the political trenches in America for many decades. And uh, it was originally the Hamiltonians, who were the economic nationalists, who didn't believe that the economy would develop sufficiently uh, if left to the devices of the free market. Uh, it needed subsidies for roads, which uh, in, in one of the chapters of my Lincoln book, I show that that wasn't necessary. There were many thousands of miles of privately financed roads built in, in the uh, early days of the 19th century in, in the United States. They thought uh, industries like steel needed to be protected with tariffs. And of course, the steel industry has been protected with tariffs ever, almost from the very beginning in the 19th century. And it's uh, under Hamilton's notion that uh, it, it was an infant industry needed to be protected while it was growing up and, of course, it st apparently still has not grown up because one of the first things Bush did was put 50% tariffs on steel in his first administration. It still hasn't grown up. And then, of course, the central bank, the Bank of America, was Hamilton's baby. And the central bank uh, was always intended to be used to finance this whole economic nationalism scheme, among, among other things. And then after, after that, Henry Clay took up the mantle after Hamilton's death the Whig Party and Henry Clay took up the mantle of economic nationalism, and then Lincoln. Lincoln, after Clay's death, Lincoln was the heir to this this um, this whole tradition, and we finally succeeded in adopting economic nationalism as an economic policy during the Lincoln administration with the National Currency Acts, massive subsidies for the transcontinental railroads, uh, uh, and. Uh, protectionist tariffs that were in the 45 to 50 percent range and stayed there until 1913 when the income tax came in. So that was, that was the, the Republican policy of, the, of that time. And uh, since I've written, um, in the years since my uh, Lincoln book came out, there have been uh, several other books written by various authors who uh, pretty much agree with this, uh, 
uh, a historian named, uh, named Holt at, uh, at the University of Virginia, a pretty well-known uh, historian of the Whig Party. He, uh, he's written a new book that pretty much agrees with this. Uh, uh, but most recently, the, uh, uh, Michael Lind, there's a book by uh, Michael Lind uh, entitled What Lincoln Believed. And I think I'm pretty sure he plagiarizes me all throughout because <laughs> he doesn't cite me once. But, you know, those of you who are authors and you know, you know it's pretty easy to recognize your own writing, uh, <laughs> especially, uh, especially I've always been a library rat in my research. So I spent hours and hours just searching through uh, uh, documents and, and articles and things. And, and I, I kind of enjoy it. It's being sort of like being an investigative re reporter and an economist at the same time. And so there are a lot of really obscure academic journal articles that I've dug up that I've put into my book. And it would be a, a real miracle if Michael Lind had dug up these exact same obscure academic articles that, I, that, that he cites but doesn't cite that he got them from my book. So I, essentially it plagiarizes me. But he comes, so I, I criticize um, the Lincoln regime on economic grounds for adopting protectionism, corporate welfare, uh, central banking. Uh, but Lynn, he's an economic nationalist, and he says this was great. It's a great thing that this happened. So the whole thrust of his book was this: this, this was a great thing. He, he praises all of this as, as being a, being a good thing, and he calls it uh, uh, Lincoln's Second American Republic. This this economic nationalism, and he goes on further to say that um, that some of the ideas behind economic nationalism in the 19th century, long before the fascists came around came from uh, such people as Frederick List, the German uh, theorist, who wrote a book called The National System of Political Economy in 1841. And Lincoln was a fan of some of, some, some of the Germans, uh, German theorists here, he, uh, uh, especially the uh, people like List uh, uh, and Lieber. Uh, Francis Lieber was one of his advisors. And here's what uh, Michael Lind writes in his book. He says, uh, Bismarck's imperial uh, Germany which followed a policy of economic nationalism modeled on that of the United States. So he argues that uh, Bismarck's Germany uh, took a look at what happened in the United States with protectionism, massive corporate welfare for railroads and so forth, and central banking, and then adopted that. And he thinks this is a good thing. And uh, he says this, theorists of the German historical school developed a nuanced historical approach to economics to justify all of this as an alternative to the abstract pseudo-scientific approach of British classical economists such as Smith and Ricardo. And so that, that's uh, Michael Lynn. And then here's probably the funniest line in his whole book, and this book was just published in the past year, is this. From Germany, the theory and program of economic nationalism was disseminated to Japan. During a visit to Germany in the 1870s, Okubo, uh, Toshimichi, one of the leaders of the Meiji Restoration, became acquainted with the Hamilton, Clay, List, Lincoln tradition. And the reason I think it's funny is that these are sort of, you know, this, this sort of evolved into German and Japanese fascism. There's this whole combination of ideas. Uh, List is saying, isn't it great that we exported these ideas to Japan and Germany? Uh, but, I'm, but I'm reading this and saying, well, these, this is uh, fascism. This it, it is what it is. Uh, it's nothing to, to brag about. And List, uh, uh, Lind is such a fascist that, you know, if you, I looked up the um, Webster's Dictionary of, 
uh, definition of fascism. It says it's, quote, a political philosophy, movement, or regime that exalts nation and often a race above the individual. Uh, and it stands for a centralized autocratic government. In the last two chapters of Lynn's book, What Lincoln Believed, he points out that Lincoln was um, a, a white supremacist who his whole life uh, had this scheme in his mind that he followed through with during his administration to essentially deport all the black people back to Liberia, Central America, anywhere but America. And Lynn says in his book that had Lincoln lived, his second administration probably would have been very largely devoted toward trying to uh, create an all-white society because Lincoln didn't believe a uh, democratic republic could exist with, you know, as a multiracial republic. And so Lynn goes on in the last chapter of his book to, uh, to praise countries like Australia that had an immigration policy that did not allow blacks to uh, immigrate into Australia. And so he says the whole last chapter is just an ode to the Australians and the Canadians and, and others in the 19th century, early 20th century, because why? Well, economic nationalism and a racist immigration policy. And he sort of paints this as they had the right idea. And so, I don't know, he seems to fit the, the Webster's Dictionary definition of a fascist to me with, with this combination of things, uh, of, of policies. And so, uh, so that, that's how I'm going to bring Lincoln into all this and that um, what the Germans and the Japanese and Italians were referring to as economic fascism, I think it has roots, you can make a case it has roots here in America. Uh, that, that long preceded any ideas that Mussolini or the Japanese fascists or Hitler, uh, people like that, uh, um, had. Okay, and of course there's a long, uh, it's not, it didn't end there in the United States. Um, and since no one has, uh, has uh, quoted John T. Flynn yet, I'll, I don't think they have anyway, I will, in how Flynn described the New Deal, the, the first New Deal, um, uh, by making an analogy to Mussolini. Uh, John T. Flynn said, Mussolini organized each trade or industrial group or professional group into a state-supervised trade association. He called it a cooperative. These cooperatives operated under state supervision and, can plan, and could plan production, quality prices, distribution, labor standards. Roosevelt's National Recovery Act provided that in American industry, each industry should be organized into a federally supervised trade association. It was not called a cooperative. It was called a code authority. But it was essentially the same thing. This was fascism. So the NRA was very similar to uh, what was going on at the time in, uh, in uh, Italy. And uh, another example I'd like to bring to your attention was a, uh, is a Wall Street Journal that I, article that I wrote on October 26, 1993, quite some time ago, that I'll just pass around here. And it was, uh, I'll just give it to somebody here, if, uh, maybe, some, maybe you could push it, pass it around the other aisle, just hand it to the gentleman on the end. And, and this was about, uh, since I had already read all this stuff I've been talking about prior to this, this was in the middle of the, the Clinton administration uh, plan to, a, to uh, nationalize the healthcare system. And, you know, I was very keenly uh, uh, paying attention to what Clinton was saying about this because, like a good slick politician, he didn't mention anything about this during the campaign in 1992. And then all of a sudden he gets inaugurated and there's all this talk about health care reform. And, I, and for weeks and weeks I, I kept hearing health care reform, health care reform, health care reform, but no specifics like any slick politician would do. Uh, and so uh, then finally when he made his first speech outlining just what the reform would be, 
I'm there in front of the television taking notes, and he outlined that there would be a national health board of seven appointees at the top, and then there would be sort of these regional commissions uh, all around the country that would that would uh, plan uh, the different aspects of the healthcare industry. Uh, you know, the the uh, medical schools would be under the supervision of one one type of organization. The nursing profession would be under the control of another type. And I'm sitting there saying, where, where, have I, where have I heard this before, this, this organizational chart? And sure enough, it was Mussolini's Italy. So I, so I just, uh, like right then and there, I just whipped up this article in about an hour and sent it to the Wall Street Journal, and they published it like a day, a day later uh, on there. And the title they gave it was, uh, Clinton Health Plan Salutes Italy's Past. Uh, there. And, uh, and the way I wrote it was I made all these analogies between the Clinton plan and Mussolini's, but I didn't say that it was Mussolini's until the last two paragraphs. And so I just said it was an Italian plan. So if you read it, it, it sounds like Italy did it maybe 10 years ago and it didn't work too well. But then I reveal in the last uh, couple of paragraphs that this was the, the 1930s that I was quoting in there. And so, uh, you know, Americans have had, uh, you know, you, I guess you could call Hamilton the founding father of economic fascism in the world, and uh, which is uh, why I'm thinking of writing a book called uh, Hamilton's Curse, because there's a book called Hamilton's Blessing, and the blessing is supposedly public, public debt is supposedly Hamilton's blessing to, to America. And so this is uh, one reason why my next target might be uh, uh, Hamilton, America's homegrown economic fascist. And uh, maybe I'll quit right about there. Thank you.